Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, and for the purposes of this podcast, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. Uh, people have written it in phonetic Hebrew. Nice. Uh, people have written it in uh, Cyrillic. Ooh. And uh, this week we have somebody who wrote in using Pokemon. I'll get to that letter in a minute. Well, I am very curious about that. I am not going to lie. Yeah, this is our letters podcast. Every week we invite our listeners to write in letters to Mm. letters at critically acclaimed dot net. And uh, we read those letters. We answer your questions. We take recommendations. We offer recommendations when they're asked for. Uh, we uh, take your criticism. We we re- listen to your very silly jokes, many of which are brilliant. Uh, <laughs> this is this is your podcast. This is your oyster. Ah, shucks. And uh, yeah, let's just get right into it. Whitney, oh, jump right in. What? Start with a shucks pun. What? Here we go. How often do I get to use that? You get to uh, lead the conversation. So here right. we go. And the conversation uh, this episode is going to be led by Anya. Hello. Hi. Hello, Anya. Hello, Messrs. Bibiani and McCool, C-U-I-L. Long-time listener, first-time writer. Welcome. Love it. Uh, I hope you two are doing well in the 2020 home stretch. Uh, fingers crossed. I hope 2021 uh, does mean the end of a home stretch and not... <laughs> Uh, I've I've seen the joke. It's like okay, we're we're counting down on New Year's Eve for 2021, and the it's like 12:31:20, and the clock ticks over 13:1:20. It's like no, there's <laughs> somehow a 13th month this year that just appeared out of nowhere. Lousy uh, smart weather. <laughs> I was wondering. Uh, I was watching the miniseries Over the Garden Wall. Oh, that's a, a great one. When a thought struck me, in case any and uh, you or any of your listeners are unfamiliar with the series, the story it's the story of two brothers who get lost in the spooky woods and try to find their way home. It takes place over the course of ten episodes, each one about eleven minutes long. Of course, upon learning of this information, I thought this would have been perfect for Quibi. This got me thinking about other movies and TV shows that could be adapted for the Quibi format. So I posed this question, uh, and to the other two people who would care, should we get another Quibi-like service sometime in the future? What pre-existing movies or TV shows would you like to see adapted for that service? Alternately, are there any books, comics, other non-film media that you do you think would be adapted well for the Quibi format? Maybe even better than if adapted to a movie or a TV show. Mm. Uh, take care. Uh, happy and early holidays to you and your families. Anya. Uh, and Anya also gives some suggestions for a drinking show, but uh, oh yeah, we mentioned this before. The, the uh, drinking game, excuse me. We, we've talked to it before about how we know a lot of people have noticed that we there are certain things that Whitney and I would make a lot of podcasts. Mm. There are things we do a lot. Uh, we've had some suggestions over time, like what would be the critically acclaimed drinking game. And this mm. could be specific to just one of our shows, or it could be across the board. What, what are her yeah. suggestions? Uh, this is uh, P.S. Uh, suggestion for the All Our Yesterdays drinking game. Ah, our Star Trek show drinking yeah. game. Uh, if Bibbs or Whitney can't remember the title of a previous episode. Yes. Uh, Bibbs and Whitney complain about Bones racism. Yes. <laughs> Bibbs and Whitney complain about sexism, too, if the sexism is directed toward Uhura Orner's Chapel. Yep. Uh, Bibbs and Whitney praise the supporting cast. Yep. When Bibbs rags on Bailey. <laughs> Bailey is the worst person. Bailey is the worst person in the Star Trek take, universe, man. Take a drink if Whitney complains about new Star Trek 2 if it's Discovery. <laughs> take a drink when Whitney says this will come up later in an episode of blank. And uh, finish the bottle if Bibbs and Whitney complain about Voyagers, or start a new one if it's about Janeway, and finish that bottle if it's about Tuvix. <laughs> 
That's pretty good. Mm. That's that. That kind of covers most of the bases. We should, have just, we should have just called the, the podcast Tuvix Sucks. <laughs> does Tuvix suck? No, does tu- what we did to Tuvix what, suck? What, 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 we, what Janeway did to Tuvix sucks. Yeah. Well, it's like we just stood by, didn't we? Just in the audience. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the whole thing is, you know, what, what do we do ethically? We'll just kill Tuvix. <laughs> really? That's the ethical? Th- no, but we'll, we're doing it. Right, we, we wrote ourselves into a corner. There's no good answer to this episode. We, we can't get rid of two <laughs> So two we're just going to have Janeway do like, a really terrible thing, and then we're just going to lean into it and pretend it was fine. And there's never like a follow-up, like, yeah. hey, remember that time you murdered Tuvix to yeah. get your, your old friends back? All the captain's logs from like that era are just like mysteriously missing <laughs> when they get back to Federation space. <laughs> she, uh, she showed up in... one uh, reference to something called a Tuvix? What is that? Nothing. We do not speak of Tuvix. We sent him 930 years into the future. Um, sure. They, uh, <laughs> when, when Janeway showed up in, I think it was in Star Trek Nemesis, you know, it's like she's an admiral now and she's being praised for being able to get the ship back. It's like, no, she should be in prison yeah. for all of like the horrible shit she did. Anyway. Yeah, it's going to be like mutiny um, on the bounty or something. As, um, as for your Quibi question, uh, yeah. we talked about or this. Quibption. Mm, no, it's a we're, we're work on that one a it's little a bit more. Uh, we we uh, actually question. we we did this on our Star Wars podcast because we were talking about uh, mm, how yeah I was thinking about Star this. Wars was inspired by uh, a lot of old like Buck Rogers and and uh, serials yeah and uh, the way that those serials worked if you didn't listen to our episode mm-hmm. zero podcast about it uh, was before or some or often in between mm-hmm. movies at a movie theater uh, they would show a lot of shorts sometimes animated shorts newsreels and they would often show uh, sort of adventure serials which would typically be one reel long um, mm-hmm. ten to fifteen minutes of uh, some sort of rollicking action adventure thing and they would end in a big cliffhanger and then he would have to come back to the theater next week to find out what happened next uh, this format worked really well for Star Wars it keeps those movies going at a rollicking pace from one big set piece to another and uh, it w- I was literally when the question came up what else would be good on Quibi my first thought was Star Wars Star Wars the original Star Wars Perfect film because form. it was actually carved up uh, kind of to have climaxes every 10 or 15 minutes or so. Yeah. Not like gigantic action fights, no, but, but you know, some, the some structure sort of, of it. some yeah. sort of, yeah, like little, little bit of action or a little bit of suspense. Uh, several episodes of we've got mail ago. Someone actually wrote in and said, to have like, carved what, up the, what the Star time Wars. codes would yeah. be. And they even gave them titles. It yeah. was really awesome. That's basically the Quibi uh, star Wars. Mm. Um, uh, but on a similar vein, uh, uh, Indiana Jones is based on the same stuff, and yeah, an Indiana yeah, Jones type uh, adventure serial would work really perfectly. Uh, and not maybe not all superhero stuff because I know there's like like I, I wouldn't do Todd Phillips Joker in a quibby way. No, nah, I can't. But, uh, that quite work but I could see any of the Avengers movies mm. uh, because those are also a serialized format, aren't they? Comic books do have like little mini set pieces and little mini climaxes throughout. Sure. There's like fight scenes every five or ten minutes or so. Yeah, so you could have little bits. You mean Avengers Endgame would be a good season of Quibi? Yeah. Instead of just one gigantic three-hour film, I would love to see someone like. Uh, oh, you know, be cool hmm. uh, is if you do Richard Linklater's like Waking Life on Quibi. Oh, there you and go. And every new thing would be like a new, a new dream or a new con- uh, conversation. Yeah, a new, completely challenging, interesting. Uh, uh, scene mm. maybe it has something to do with that with what you saw last time maybe it doesn't and it's all rotoscoped by different people and it's really beautiful I think it's fair to say that Quibi which is dead now 
Uh, we are talking uh, about this, this on this December is, 1st. It's gone. Yeah, we're recording on December 1st, and as of today... No more it's Quibi. Sick Transit Gloria uh, Mundi. Quibi quickly became a punchline. Quickly, and, and frankly, they didn't do enough to really dispel that. Uh, Qu- Quibi was definitely, regardless of whether or not it was a good idea, definitely came along the wrong year. Yeah. Because, again, it was supposed to be digested very, very quickly while you're on the go in a year where everyone stayed home. Mm. Um so it made no yeah. sense in the current environment the, based on so, how they sold it. But they could have just sold it as we're a new format. Mm-hmm. We do TV and movies a different way. We're going to try an entirely new form of, of entertainment, ex- of yeah. experiencing your entertainment. It's something that's a bit more rigidly structured. And let's see what exciting things people can do with it. And if you listen to the Cancel Too Soon episode all about Quibi, the first time we ever did an episode about the failure of a network as opposed to a show, uh, Whitney and uh, B. Peterson mm-hmm. uh, did an excellent job running down about, give or take, about 20 shows uh, that uh, will you know were on Quibi, some of which were very good, some of which were very bad, some of which were merely interesting, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and how that went. Um, I do think that the type of media Quibi was trying to do, and the type of interactivity they were trying to do, they were doing shows like I think it was Wireless, yeah. where the idea was you watch because you know, again when you watch something on your phone, your phone actually like changes mode or landscapes when you tilt it on its side. Right. Like when you're watching YouTube, for example, mm-hmm. you look at it upright, you see like the video at the top of the screen and you can see like the comments or the mm-hmm. recommended videos at the bottom. You turn it on its side, you just see the landscape view like you're watching it like on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wireless was a show, it's my understanding, I didn't get to watch this one, where you would watch it one way, you watch it like on its side and you'd see it like a movie, but if mm-hmm. you turned it on its end, you would see what the character was looking at on their phone would, at that exact moment. It would be like you're holding their phone yeah. in that moment. That's novel. Yeah. Like, say what you will. That's an mm-hmm. interesting approach, and no one else was really doing that. And that's a shame that that doesn't have an opportunity to grow. Of course, the downside of Quibi, uh, besides the fact that it lost a lot of money... <laughs> Like a you know, billion dollars. Uh, it lost $1.75 billion. Now, that that sounds like a lot. Yes, it does, Whitney. Netflix spends $15 billion on original programming every year. True. And they don't advertise it. A lot of that stuff That's is true. just swallowed up. That's They're true. throwing money down a hole even worse than Quibi ever did. And yet, So maybe we shouldn't get on Quibi's case for losing only $1.75 billion. I'm going to say this right now. $1.75 billion is enough money to change the world if you mm. spend it right. That's true. Uh, but regardless, it's Cor- also... Are you saying that corporations are soulless and are hoarding wealth? I, I am saying that one of the reasons why Quibi mm. was so gung-ho about its format is when you're working in the short form, you don't have to pay people as much. No, I, I suppose so. Yeah, that's kind of mm. kind of messed up. Uh, but uh, in any case, it's gone. It was mm. an experiment. Um, sounds like there's a few good things that we lost. Um, a lot of them might be able to come back. And yeah, if it did come back, people wanted to do the bite-sized format. I think the best way to do it, Mm. um, I think there are two things that would work really, really well. One is something that is really fast paced and rollicking and, um, makes you want to come back just to see what happens next because it's really wild and crazy, either because Mm. it's adventurous or just weird. Um, I think uh, reality TV actually kind of works kind of better in that format for me mm-hmm. because I can't watch an hour of that of that 
absolute uh, yeah, yeah, it's, absurdity. It's just, I just can't. I, I, I get sad little, after a while. It's a little caustic. Yeah, but he would give me 10 minutes, and I'm like, okay, that's an interesting sort of window into I, this weird world. I would not have sat to watch an hour of Murder House Flip. No. But I can see no. little bits of Murder House Flip. In fact, yeah. I can watch more of it that way. Exactly. If you're splitting it up for me, there's this weird compulsion to keep on going. Yeah, exactly. So I think mm. that one would work really, really well. Uh, in that format, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, uh, and I think weird experimental stuff well, would have been really good for it too. And what about film reviews? Yeah, just have a little tiny single film, ten minute film review. I once mm-hmm. pitched a podcast uh, to um, actually to a couple of the outlets I've written for called mm-hmm. Your Daily Criterion. Oh yeah, and yeah, the yeah. idea was it was going to be like a five to seven minute daily podcast mm-hmm. where it's just like a little brief essay introducing you to a film in the Criterion collection. Yeah. Uh, and they said, we can't do that. It's a little too brand forward. It's like yeah, it's that, all that, about one like brand. If, yeah. if, if Criterion put that out, that would be kind of cool, but we yeah. can't do that. That's like, well, you could do like... It's like free advertising. We'd want to, we'd want to get paid to do that. Of course, I, I pointed out, but you have like whole channels on your website devoted to like Disney. That's a brand name. So yeah, no, that, Batman, that's, that's, that's a whole, like, that's a brand that, name. That's different. How? No, it's actually... How is, it, how is that different? Not really, no. If you don't want me to do this brand, say that. Don't yeah. say it's too brand forward. Well, that's a good point. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, yeah, um, sometimes interesting ideas come along and then someone will do it a slightly different way later and mm. everyone will go, oh, it's brilliant now. Yeah. And then we'll all point to Quibi and go, eh? Yeah, so, some some hip young person, like Halsey yeah. is going to put out oh, their version of, of Quibi and... Yeah. <laughs> or Steve, you know, or Steve Soderbergh. Oh, Steve Soderbergh actually worked in Quibi, didn't he? Uh, he he yeah. produced Wireless. In fact, that, yeah. that tech thing was his idea. But like Steve, uh, Steven Spielberg will re- release some sort of movie. He was, pl- he was planning Quibi. something for Quibi. All right, fine. You know what? In fact, it had a really cool gimmick. It was going to oh, be called it? After Dark, and it was going to be a horror anthology series oh, yeah. r- directed by Spielberg. He was going to do a TV series for his friend Katzenberg. Yeah. And the gimmick was you could only watch it in uh, during the night. Yeah. Like they wouldn't be on the service during daylight hours in your time zone. See, that's fun. That's kind of fun, right? I think right? that's neat. I think that's creative. <laughs> All right, let's move on. All right. Um, but thank you for writing in. That's a great letter. Thank you for writing in. Uh, here is a letter from the Gorilla Walrus Ninja. Great. Uh, I, I read however you sign off. Yeah. So when, is, if, it, if your name is in the subject line, I won't read that. It, but, uh, is that of the Nantucket Gorilla Walrus Ninjas? <laughs> the, the Bridgeport Mintedents. Oh, sorry. Um, hello, the two coolest guys ever, Rockmeister McCool and Bibbs. Oh, thanks. So that's the, kind. And, and there's no commas, so it's not like the two coolest guys ever. Also, you guys. Oh, um, well, in that case, fair enough. <laughs> I went on a long road trip recently to spend time with my parents and was wondering uh, what are some what are some of the best films about coming home? This doesn't uh, just have to be about films about visiting family, but films such as Rambo First Blood, where he's coming back <laughs> from a war to a society that doesn't accept him, or even Captain Marvel, where she comes home to Earth. Your friend, the Gorilla Walrus Ninja. Uh, uh, this is a very mm-hmm. uh, common storytelling trope. Oftentimes, people uh, return to the place uh, that they were raised and find that they have changed or that that place has changed. And uh, there's a lot of wonderful stories that have been told about that. Uh, the first one that came to mind for me was The Best Years of Our Lives, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is one of the better movies ever made. Uh, it's a 1940s film about uh, World War II uh, soldiers, veterans who return home from the war, and they are all, to oh, one very degree of another, it. very damaged. Um uh, one person is just sort of psychologically traumatized. Another person actually lost their hands in the war. And uh, 
yeah, it's actually just this incredible story about uh, these men who went through something that no one that they know at home can mm-hmm. understand uh, mm-hmm. and how they are trying to reacclimatize mm-hmm. to living in a quote unquote normal world when they no longer feel normal. Yeah. And that's really powerful and it's surprisingly hopeful without feeling like twee or insensitive well, I and, think. but it's also very frank yeah. about sort of the damage they've suffered uh, one character is just doesn't have a place in this world and he goes through some uh, suicidal periods yeah. uh, there's another character whose marriage is just completely on the rocks and yeah. he, he's not in the headspace to deal with that um yeah, it's it's a really, really frank, wonderful film, and a lot of the the better coming home films that come immediately to mind are coming home from war. Yeah, very and com- there were a lot of coming home from Vietnam movies that I've seen. Oh yeah, they were really, really cool. Uh, Deer have, Hunter. Yeah, I haven't seen Coming Home. <laughs> Ironically, <laughs> yeah, I haven't either. Um, yeah, but I have seen the Deer Hunter. Uh, I've seen. Um, First Blood's actually a pretty good. Example. First Blood that's is a, a good great one. Movie. Uh, I think the best of the ones I've seen is Rolling Thunder. Oh, that's a great uh, with movie. William Devane. It's bleak, but it's really it's, good. It's, yeah, it's it's like it's even like borderline Grindhouse because it's it turns oh, yeah. out to be like this big revenge story. But yeah, but yeah, it's that one's actually like really frank, and mm. William Devane is excellent in that movie. Yeah, uh, Tommy Lee Jones is in it as well. He plays sort of a, his sidekick who is equally damaged. We just don't spend time with him. Right. Uh, and yeah, robbery about silver dollars. It's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, trying to think of like other ones that are a little bit more lighthearted because we just reviewed uh, uh, Happiest Season, which oh, is yeah. which is kind of a coming home story. But now. it's all about coming home to an environment where you're, it was actually like mm-hmm. kind of emotionally abusive, and you learn yeah. maladaptive behaviors mm-hmm. and how it's when you uh, sink back into those, mm-hmm. the people who know you as an adult don't recognize you anymore. Well, yeah, how you you become a different person than, yeah. when when you're home. Uh, the World's End is a good one. Oh, there you go. Uh, Simon Pegg. The, uh, the one guy who never left. Yeah. Meeting his friends who are coming home. Yeah. I, all of his friends ended up like growing up, having families, jobs and everything. And this guy has been romanticizing this epic pub crawl they never finished. When they and were teenagers. When they were yeah. teenagers. And he's still like living um, uh, in a very immature life. He's uh, he's literally listening to the same mixtape they listened yeah. to on that night. He's got, uh, you know, his, his whole life has been riddled with substance abuse and he wants to relive glory days without realizing that he's the only one who actually wants to do that. Yeah, like uh, all of his friends have outgrown that. Also, but there he, are robots. Uh, he, <laughs> that's well, a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> and right when he hits his low moment, the robots show up. I prefer yeah. to think of that movie as a fantasy. Like yeah. the rest of that movie is just in his head. Like this is the only way I can deal with it. I could save them if there were robots. Like that's the level of maturity he's dealing with. Yeah. He, he doesn't think I, I can go out there and grow up and be a better person. The only thing you can think of is no, there's actually evil robots in this town and my <laughs> drinking will save them. Um, yeah, that's a good one too. Um, let's see what else there's, uh, uh, so many movies is crazy. Superman three, <laughs> Star Trek four, the voyage home. <laughs> they go back home to San Francisco, but it's the past this time. Yeah, they don't do that. It's not, it doesn't work. There, there hasn't been a Star Trek movie that's taken place on Earth. Not, but it's Star in Trek. Any meaningful, but it's voyage Star, home, but that's in the, in the past. Yeah, it's, Star Trek. It's about Star Trek. Yeah, it's, it's about leaving. About the, well, hold on. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa! Yeah. First contact. Well, that, Both of the time travel stories have ended true. up being on Earth. It has have taken place on Earth. Yeah, so boom. Okay. Nullified. I take I I I apologize. I'm disappointed in you. And Star Trek Picard takes like a big chunk of it takes place okay. on Earth. I actually haven't seen that one yet. Uh 
Um, it sucks. <laughs> Take a drink. <laughs> uh, you know what's kind of a coming home movie in a way? Mm. Blue Velvet. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Jeffrey's yeah. coming home from Jeffrey, college. He goes, he goes to college and then he's going off and he's living his life and he, he's, you know, he's an adult now and his father is ill and he mm. comes home and he realizes now as an adult that this incredibly idyllic suburban life that he had has true horror lurking just barely under the surface. Like how did he miss it before? Yeah. Um, and so that one's not, you don't get a lot of the contrast, but it's definitely baked into the premise mm. that uh, now that I'm older and now that I'm returning home this. Uh, oh, here's another good one. Uh, the Jodie Foster movie home for the holidays. That's uh, like a Thanksgiving film with Holly Hunter and I, Robert I Downey never, Jr. I saw that, but not all the way through. Oh, I was been, working in the movie theater where it was yeah. showing. It was one of those things where like pieced together. The it's film been a long time since viewings. I've seen it, but I remember loving that movie. Mm-hmm. So that's another good one as well. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of good examples. Uh, feel free to recommend any more mm-hmm. if you want. All right. Uh, let's move on. All right. Uh, here's a letter from Zay. Hello, Zay. Hi. And it says, Dear Bibbs, and this is the one that's spelled out with Pokemon. It, that says, I, this is, I'm showing this to William right now. Uh, it's That says Rock Meister McCool. It does. In, I see what you're saying. In <gasps> a Pokemon what? that is called, uh, I'm not sure if it's pronounced unknown or you know. It's, it's the word unknown with the K removed. Oh. And uh, they show up in one of the Pokemon games. There's 26 of them. Each one looks like a different letter of the alphabet. They have weird mystical powers. They're featured very heavily in Pokemon the movie. Pokemon... Three, the movie. Okay, that's the title of the film. Yeah, it's not just your usual Pokemon Three. This is the movie version. Well, there was a Pokemon the first movie. Yes, the second movie was called Pokemon the Movie Two Thousand because it came out in the year two thousand. Okay, and then the third one was called Pokemon Three, the movie. Right, which was a little little confusing. I'm gonna. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go. Fourth one was called po- Pokemon Forever, and then Pokemon Heroes. I've, and then, I've uh, dedicated a lot of my life to a lot of weird stuff, and I think i got to draw the line <laughs> at actually figuring out like the chronology and the monsters of Pokemon. I just I have to draw the line somewhere. Uh, I no, have to true. draw the line somewhere, and you've already tackled this. We've got an expert on the show. Mm. I'm just happy. I, uh, <laughs> I'm gone. Okay, bye. Bye. You see, in the Pokemon universe, no, um, I've I've explained my relationship with Pokemon in the past, and uh, how it was something that I was using to cement over a bad relationship, and I became weirdly obsessed with it. Anyway, I'm still over here. The letter is from Zay. Uh, firstly, how are you? I feel like this isn't asked enough. I'm not dead yet. Oh, that's uh, kind of you. Thank you very much. You brought me back. Yeah. Uh, secondly, <laughs> I, I wanted mean, we're to, hanging in there. I wanted to talk about the representation of overweight people in film. Oh, that's a great topic. Yeah. I've I've been bothered by my own weight ever since I was ten years old, and I've come to enjoy my body more as an adult. But there are times when it's harder. So, of course, as a film lover, I am also interested in fat slash overweight representation in film. I can't think of too many things that represented me growing up, except Disney villains or goofy characters that were the butt of jokes and. Shrek. (laughs) However, in 2007, the Hairspray film musical came out, and for the first time, I felt body euphoria for being fat. 
Tracy's size was a plot point as well as her mom's, but by the end of the film, it's celebrated in a song that I can't tell you how many times I've listened to You Can't Stop the Beat. Fast forward to 2016, another film called Other People, starring Jesse Plemons and Molly Shannon in her finest dramatic role. Mm-hmm. Plemons plays a gay man, and in this film, he is not fit or skinny like so many gay male protagonists in film, and there's an, even a small short sex scene in the film. It does not affect the overall plot at all, but it's a small moment that meant the world to me to see someone with belly rolls participating in sex. It really shouldn't mean so much to me, but seeing gay movie after gay movie of the same gorgeous person falling in love with another gorgeous person who is d- who is different forms of toned and white, will there or won't they, that one that one scene has stuck with me through every love story I don't see myself in. So I, I guess my question is, have you ever seen a film or a show that gave you a similar feeling, or do you think, uh, or a film you think ex- exudes great body, body positivity to it? I'd also like to add that I'm tired of European artsy-fartsy movies that use obes- obesity as a metaphor for greed. Yeah. Uh, taxidermia is a fucking trip and a half. I just wanted happy, fat people in a moving, living, real lives. Uh, sending all the best vibes, Zay. Uh, okay, that's actually a really great topic, and that's something that I'm I'm sensitive to as well. In case you haven't seen me in my in the various videos, the various shows that I've done online, uh, I'm a fat guy. I am uh, not a skinny guy. Never have been. Uh, even when I have been at like lower weights, I'm just mm. stocky. I'm just big. Um, and it's been really frustrating throughout my whole life. I've, I've fluctuated a bit, but most mm. of my life have been fat. Uh, to see how fat people are represented in film. Because there's never been a shortage of fat people in film. However, there has been a shortage of fat people in film presented in, an, in a non-shameful manner. It's, it's Think of how many times you've seen a character in a movie or a TV show who was fat and who was constantly seen eating. Yeah. As though that defines them. Like, uh, and it's okay to show people eating and co- even constantly sure. eating. Uh, Brad we, Pitt constantly eats in Ocean's yeah, we Eleven. We were just talking but, about Ocean's Eleven yeah. on a recent podcast about how Brad Pitt is but just if, always but eating if, on camera. But if that character was like, I don't know, John Candy hmm. or Chris Far- Chris Farley's a better example. He played into it a little bit more in his comedy sometimes. Uh, you, you would say to yourself, oh, he's, he's hmm. fat. Yeah. Chris Farley is actually a good example because in some of his comedies, he was incidentally fat. He was yeah. a buffoon character. True. Uh, and, you know, I understand that it is a cliche to watch the fat guy fall down, uh, but it was rarely addressed by the other characters, and he was given love interests, and he was True. often the protagonist. Like, Tommy Boy stories. is actually yeah. pretty good in this regard. Yeah, I will, uh, I will grant you this. And, and, and you know, his, his dad is Brian Dennehy, and nobody comments yeah. on his size either. That's actually uh, a good point. Actually, you know what, Brian? Yeah. Chris Farley is not the best example. So, but um, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're out there, but yeah, it's really kind of hard mm-hmm. to find a... Incidentally or heroic fat characters. I, I even wrote an article was, about this once years ago. I remember when I was a kid mm. and I saw Star Wars for the first time. I'd actually seen like Empire and Return of the Jedi a bunch of times on TV, mm. but I'd never actually sat down and watched Star Wars. I watched it in a weird order. Mm. So I finally watched Star Wars and I realized I didn't occur to me because it was so common mm. that there weren't a lot of fat people in the movie until they finally introduced one towards the end of the film. Mm. And his name was Porkins, and, 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 was, and then he dies immediately. And in the expanded universe, doesn't he have like an extra rude full His name? name like Jack Porkins. Jack Porkins. I don't, oh, I don't okay. know. That's not really that bad. But Porkins like, is is not a subtle name, and he's mm-hmm. the only guy who is quite large uh, in that movie. And yeah, he exists to be a fat joke and die. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching the Star Wars, and I'm just like. Well, I don't feel very welcome here. Thanks a lot. Do they address him by name in the movie? Or? I don't recall. I 
think they do. Okay. If memory serves, it's been a bit. Because um, if they don't call him Porkins, nice. then he's not a joke. He's, he's just a fat guy who dies. Well, that... But he at least gets to fly one of the... the I mean, a, a, a lot of... Immediately die, but yeah. But, but, you know, but, but again, he's like one of many victims of that, that uh, raid. There's this unfortunate thing, though, where... Fat shaming is often considered by some people, and it can be really frustrating to have this conversation, mm. um, as "quote unquote" okay. Because if you sh- because the perspective some people have is that shaming some people being for being fat is in their best interests, mm. because then maybe they won't want to be fat, and then they'll be healthy. A couple of things mm. with that: one, being fat is not necessarily unhealthy. It's actually just not. We know mm-hmm. a lot more about medicine now. That's not necessarily the case. Two, it's none of your fucking business. Mm. And just going up to someone and telling them how to live their lives is incredibly rude mm. and incredibly condescending and often incredibly demoralizing. And if you were mm. inclined and you were perhaps trying to uh, uh, change your weight uh, mm. for w- whatever reason you chose – it can actually be incredibly discouraging because now someone is just telling you that you're worth less mm. because of how you look. It sucks. And the fact that there is a lot of people, a lot, mm. who think that fat shaming isn't, you know, isn't, is not only it's, like. It's acceptable behavior. It's acceptable. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's okay to be a dick about it. Yeah. And it sucks. And it sucks to see fat shaming in movies. It's in there constantly. Um, the, it sucks to see it in TV. It's in and there constantly. We're, and we're men. True. Yeah. Um, w- women get fat shamed f- no matter what size they are. Yeah. Very true. Uh, it's, you know, that, that's, yeah. and that, that's, that's just the sharper edge of the sword for women. Yeah. It's uh, a completely it's, unreasonable standard. Yeah. A completely yeah. unreasonable standard. Um, so it's really, really frustrating and it sucks. And once you start seeing it, if you haven't already, it's becomes really hard to unsee Mm -hmm. and you start realizing just how pervasive and kind of ugly this kind of, because again, there's humor. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of humor you can have about anything really. But when the humor amounts to pointing and giggling because that person looks different or you don't think their lifestyle is good, even though you have no idea if that has anything to do with their lifestyle or not. Mm That's not funny to me. That's just shitty. Mm. So that pisses me off. But to answer your question about like good sort of mm. fat representation, uh, I, I was going to say the movie that helped me like mm. and made me go like, yeah, that's cool, was uh, The Other Hairspray. <laughs> it was the 1984 version of Hairspray. Yeah, John Waters' original version of Hairspray, uh, Hairspray starring Ricky Lake is great. Mm. It's still great. And it's absolutely wonderful, and it's completely celebrated. That's something that John Waters was always good at, was celebrating people no matter what they looked like, no matter how well, they he, dressed or anything. He just thought everyone was neat. Uh, he, he believed that movie stars just need to catch the eye. And yeah. the, uh, the idea of uh, – he, he's spoken about this. He says that you know in, in like the 1940s, they would just choose people who – were really like gorgeous and they'd shoot them in a certain kind of way. And they were like just conventionally symmetrically attractive, like magazine yeah. cover type beauty. And they'd film them through these filters and put a lot of makeup on them and make them look really gorgeous. And that's why you want to go see them because yeah. they look really gorgeous on film. 
he said that concept is still the same if you have somebody who is 450 pounds and mm. has a hook for a hand and will spit at you. It's like, that. I want to see a movie about that person. That person sounds great. Yeah, so he's like, yeah. you are a movie star. That is a, that is a, a person you want to look at. Yeah. He, he's been, that, that's the way John Waters has, has a good stated it. That's a good um, point. Yeah, uh, I realized one of my favorite uh, heroes growing up was a fat guy, and that was Mario. There you go from the video games. Yeah, like in in the original games, he was just a little little squarey thing. But uh, as they know, started drawing him with a little bit more definition, mm-hmm. you realize he's uh, he's got a belly, stocky, round yeah. little guy. Yeah, it's like, and uh, if if you watch the, uh, it, it goes into like. Italian stereotyping, but uh, when you watch him in the cartoons, he eats a lot th- in that. Yeah, just because he's got a big appetite. That's it. Yeah, it's not uh, a source of humor. No, he just he likes he likes food. Uh, uh, John Candy was yeah. a major hero of mine growing up. His mm-hmm. films, I, I think, it occasionally came up. Like it came up in Chris Farley too, like in um, mm-hmm. uh, Black Sheep. But there's a joke in the movie where uh, they're in a bunk bed, mm-hmm. and Chris Farley's on the top. But here's the thing: Chris Farley is fat. So naturally, the top bunk falls on David Spade, mm. and but, that, but it's it's punishment because David Spade was making fun of it. That's true, and so on one hand, it mm. almost works as a joke, but then you realize the joke is also Chris Farley's very fat. And I'm mm. like, dude. Um, so there's that too. I'm mm. trying to think of other some other good positive, but John Candy and like stuff like Who's Harry Crumb? Yeah, that was a good one for me. Uh, growing I was a big up. fan of that film, Delirious. Do you remember that, that one? Yeah, that was he an played, interesting one. He played, played a, a soap opera writer, a soap opera writer who uh, who yeah. suffered a head injury and woke up in like as a character in his own show. Yeah, but he was also still the writer of the show. So if he had a typewriter, he could like manipulate reality from re- within the show. Yeah, he could write the next scene in the movie or the next show or the. the, the movie that we're watching it's, but the show a, that it's a very in. bizarre premise but yeah. i rented that one a lot from my local video store it's another one that works better if you actually watched soap operas mm-hmm. and a few people do nowadays mm-hmm. or are familiar with the genre uh john belushi was another good example here like mm-hmm. some like blues brothers it's not his no. size is not an issue he's mm-hmm. doing backflips and just absolutely <laughs> cool and awesome and, uh, oh samuel hung was actually an interesting example oh, there where you go. he it's weird though because he actually would lean into it and make it uncomfortable sometimes he did a movie called skinny tiger fat Dragon, no, uh, which is the, not very productive. Isn't that, but, isn't that a sensitive title? But he would also do a lot of movies in which the, it meant nothing, and it was just mm. he was a fat badass, yeah. and that was cool. So that he, he's a, he's one where maybe you want to do some research before you watch it to see if this one's going to be like one of his like more Bro- offensive comedies. He's yeah. done some offensive some offensive films. I'm not going to mm. lie, but he's also done a lot of great films. Uh, so that's he's pretty hit or miss in that regard. But. Um, yeah, it's it's an issue though, and it's an mm. issue that we're constantly dealing with. And I think uh, we need to keep yeah. having a bit more of a dialogue about um, it because it's people, yeah, people one, have a shitty attitude. Yeah, one more example. Oh yeah, um, and this this is going to seem like a really minor example, but I I it sticks out in my mind. Uh, mm. Did you ever see the film Analyze This? Long time with, ago with with Billy Crystal and Robert yeah. De Niro. It was a, a sort of a remake of uh, other other films that had come before, mm-hmm. and it was about a. a Al Capone type gangster played by uh, Robert De Niro who needed a shrink played by Billy Crystal. It came out almost exactly the same time as The Sopranos. It was weird synergy. Yeah. And uh, the joke is that uh, the gangster doesn't really know how to talk with this sort of uh, 
very, very urbane character played by Billy Crystal. So he's like, uh, thank you for analyzing me. How do I do it? Just pay my fee. It's fine. No, no, I'm going to install a fountain in your front lawn. It's like, that's not the way psychiatry works. Billy Crystal's son in that movie mm. uh, is is a, a large boy. He's like, uh, he's a teenage, he has a teenage son in that movie who is is quite overweight. It is never mentioned. Yeah. His his size is they don't yeah. uh, pathologize his size. Yeah, they don't mock his size. Nobody's you know says oh you got you know a wrestler's physique. They they make no mention of it at all. Yeah. He is just an incidentally fat character. That's nice. He's, he's a supporting character. He's the son, but I I when I saw it, I realized that never happens. You know, I was when actually, you see an overweight character, mm-hmm. and it's not just it's not addressed at all in the script. I also like it when it's sensitively portrayed. I was actually thinking of the full Monty. Uh, which is a movie people don't talk about a lot. It was a huge hit when it came out. Uh, If you've never seen it, it's a story of a bunch of uh, factory workers who... lost their jobs. They lose their jobs, and uh, they need to find a way to make money, and so they decide uh, that they were going to put on a strip show, and the only way that these guys, who are not professional dancers and don't have the sort of Chippendales physique... Uh, can really make a splash is they're going to go all the way. They're going to be completely naked on stage. That will be their gimmick. Um, and it's actually pretty sensitively portrayed. It's got a really great cast, Robert Carlyle, Tom Wilkinson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Mark Addy is in it, and he plays the the largest gentleman in the in the group. And there's a really, really sweet scene towards the end because all of these guys are kind of just thinking about it sort of academically. But as the date when they have to do it looms, they start realizing that they all have body issues mm. of one degree or another. And Mark Addy is uncomfortable with his weight. And towards the end, when he finally like tells his wife what he was been doing this whole time. Well, she catches him. She like finds yeah. like well, she, thong underwear. She, yeah, yeah. She thinks he's cheating on her. Like this is some lady's underwear. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, that's, that's mine. I was mm-hmm. going to do a strip show. And she's like, well, you're not going to anymore. And he's like, no, I, I can't do it. And he talks about how he doesn't think anyone would want to see him naked. And his well, wife his, says, his line is who wants to watch this dance. And his wife says, I do. Me, Dave, I do. <laughs> and it's actually incredibly heartwarming mm. and sweet. And it's hard for some people, like me, mm. uh, to think that other people could find them attractive because I grew up in a very fat shaming world. Mm. And so the idea that other people could look at me and go, he looks nice. Like, even just that is yeah. hard for me to wrap my head around because I'm so programmed mm. by the culture in which I grew up to think that that was an impossibility. And it's hard for me to rewrite that. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. And the thing is, people are into a lot of different people, a lot of different types of physicalities and looks. And yeah, um, it's, yeah, yeah we, that's a part of it. And yeah. we need to actually sort of talk about that because to hear movies talk about it or to see magazines talk about it, you know, oftentimes it seems like only a certain type of person yeah, or yeah. physique or style is what's considered attractive. And that's just not true. Yeah, and it's not fair. And uh, don't feel like you need to conform to uh, oh, and any, anything you're not comfortable with. No, you don't. Um, fuck them. Like uh, seriously, now, yeah. I, I know there's fitness nuts, and they want to be ripped, and that's they work really hard, and that's their prerogative. Good for and, them if they want to do yeah, that. That's fine. They, they want to be su- like super thin and cut, no. and that's the thing that's going to make them happy. Great. Yeah. yeah. Follow your bliss. Totally awesome. But you don't have to. And follow your bliss goes both ways, doesn't it? Yeah. For all, all in all different directions, really. And and if if you hate working out and you love fudge dipped Oreos, roll with it. Or if you, or if that's not an issue at all, and it's just your metabolism or any other mm-hmm. variety of conditions that lead to you 
having a non a mm. non skinny physique. Cool. Who cares? Like I'm I'm sure you look great, mm. and uh, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. They're just being jerks. I uh, I love fudge dipped Oreos. Though. They are great. Actually, <laughs> white chocolate dipped Oreos are the best, and yeah, those have the, don't it's, don't it's, look it's, at the nutritional. Yeah, yeah. You, you, those. Like they have as much saturated fat as a stick of butter it's each. So, it's just really they're, they're so, so bad good, for you, but they're so good. So, yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna lie, I do love them. Like, I don't I don't know even yeah. how, how those things are legal. But. <laughs> they only come out with them once a year because if you eat yeah. them all year round, it would just it would be very bad for you uh, after a while. But in, indeed, regardless oh, yes. of size, it's just it's it's a lot of cholesterol. So I think I think that came in second second or third in like a list of packaged foods that were the worst for you uh-huh. like somebody actually did a survey of all okay. the packaged that, foods the important thing is that there's one worse there, there's yeah, at least there's at least one worse and it's the hungry man breakfast oh there you the go frozen hungry man breakfast Good. Well, i'm glad i don't have any of those in my cupboard i think you look at the sodium content it's like 550 percent of your daily allotment anyway uh, let's move on uh here's a letter from name redacted um dear yeah. william and whitney i've listened to your fine programs for some time now but i've yet to think of a topic i felt like writing in about until now okay i hope this both finds you well it found us. We're well. <laughs> a little tired. It's, it's currently 1231 a.m., but we're okay. Uh, not too long ago, the question, if you could have any movie prop, what would it be? Oh, yeah. uh, was asked, and I can only think of one truly appropriate answer, the cane from Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> the cane. <laughs> not the sled. <clears throat> Wait, there was no Kane in Citizen Kane. You might be protesting in your best Lisa Simpson voice. But in fact, there is. There actually is. Yeah. Can't buy a bag of peanuts in this town without somebody writing a song about you. Mr. Kane remarks as Harry Harry, as Harry A. Bailey returns with a bevy of chorus girls to yeah. sing about old Charlie Kane with a cane in hand. That's true. This moment in particular is a big one for me. I knew that song before having seen the movie. Yep. Uh, the first Monty Burns parody, again from The Simpsons, but more importantly from a song by my favorite band, The White Stripes. They the did Union a whole Forever. Citizen Kane song, and it's oh actually really God. great. Okay. And they sing the Charlie Kane song. They sing a variety of. They sing. Uh, it's like a medley. They sing a medley. Of, they sing the Charlie Kane song, and they sing a variety of other like bits of dialogue. Oh wow! And they okay. make them. They they find the bits that rhyme or that have a good cadence to. Have you never heard that? No. Oh, I gotta play that for you. It's so cool. No, it's like, really good. It's really fun. Yeah, pop pop music from 2000 to around 2006 is just like a dead zone for me. Right, that's. Just, I, I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna find the link to that. All right. That's um, really good. Uh, da, 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 White Stripes Union Forever. This convergence of influences is the reason that Kane is the holy grail of movie props for me. In fact, the White Stripes are responsible for my interest in Orson Welles altogether. In addition to the Union Forever, their song Take, Take, Take follows the POV of an over-obsessive fan's encounter with Rita Hayworth. Oh. Uh, curious about who that was, I found myself watching The Lady from Shanghai. Yeah. Another time I was channel surfing, I happened upon a film called The Third Man, knowing Jack White of the White Stripes had just started Third Man Records. I decided to watch. I didn't really think about how big a fan Jack White apparently is. He's a is. big hilarious. Orson Welles That's fan. Funny. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I decided to watch because I figured it must be a reference to a movie. It was. And from the third man, I became obsessed and I had to find anything and everything Mr. Welles had been in or directed. Uh, this wasn't the first time a band turned me on to older movies. As a really young kid, my parents weren't particularly fussy about what I consumed, mm. and I would take a piece of paper with me to the video store with practically every song by the Misfits on it <laughs> for the clerk to help me find. Oh, that's nice. great. That's cool. That's great. I probably... Uh, I was probably the only seven-year-old that gave a shit about Return of the Fly. Nice. Uh, it... 
I tell you all this because I have a question. If you ask my friends, I tell it because I'll make any excuse to talk about the White Stripes or the Misfits. Uh, Whitney has mentioned that he's often found things through parody first. Uh, Episode Zero is all about discovering film through uh, the lens of the art it inspired. So what are some of your favorite discoveries you found because you were a fan of something or someone else? Mm. Uh, Thank you for your time. Thank you, gents, for the fantastic recommendations over the years. That's an interesting question. Mm. I'm not sure I got that off the top of my head. Mm. So something um, we were a fan of something else, well, let's and see. then we went backwards. Yeah, I uh, huh. I was always interested in a lot of like the '90s counterculture stuff, yeah. and at one point uh, in all of my searching, I came upon uh, a book called "The Happy Mutant Handbook." Mm. Really informed a lot of the way I thought uh, as a teenager, yeah. and that was it was essentially like a, just a, a counterculture handbook. It's yeah. Like here, here's. And, and it was printed in the 90s, so it's like, here's the, the new world of, like, inventing... It introduced the notion of inventing yourself as your own brand, which is such a natural part of online discourse now. We don't even think of it as being separate. Like, there's the, the authentic self, but is it your authentic self once you're online? What kind of person are you trying to appear as? Yeah. That's sort of your brand, isn't it? Even yeah. if you're not selling anything, you're selling yourself. And that's a concept that came up a lot. But there were also music and film recommendations in those books. Mm. So uh, it, through a book like that, I learned about somebody like Sun Ra, the jazz musician. Right. Uh, who... Uh, you know, claimed to be from another planet and he did these really long, uh, very abstract soundscapes. He was this very experimental musician. You listen to some of his early stuff, it's really kind of conventional jazz, mm. but very quickly he like, had the solar orchestra and was mm. wearing these big elaborate headpieces. So I got to learn about Sun Ra through that. Uh, I got to learn about Ween. Uh, through the uh, book like that, do you know about Ween? I'm I'm, I'm familiar with Ween. Uh, I don't yeah. know if well, they, but, tell, they, the audi- tell the audience. Okay, we, Ween was a, a really they're kind of like stoner music from the early '90s, okay. and um, you've probably seen their logo, the Boognish, that little scared looking face with the pointy hair. Oh yeah, uh, weird scatological intrigue, but you know, pretty good musicians okay. as well. Um, and yeah, in sort of delving through a lot of that stuff, I started going to Rocky Horror at around the same time. You watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show, there's all kinds of film references just in that first song. Hmm. And uh, this is just going back to what we're currently doing with episode zero. But, but it's like, relevant. Uh, yeah. That's why we're doing it. In a it's lot, like, in a a, oh, wait, I, I know what Day of the Triffids is, and somebody just called it out. <laughs> now I'm a little more interested in seeing it because I hadn't seen it yet. Right, right, and, exactly. Well, and, like a Young Frankenstein was and, something I probably watched before any of the Universal Monster movies, except and, maybe the original Frankenstein. Yeah. And that is so evocative of the original Universal Horror stuff that it made me want to see more for example um oh i know there are other good examples of this i'm just i don't know why i'm spacing on this story unfortunately Um, all the examples i'm trying to think of are those like i i i there i read a script for a terry gilliam film that never got off the ground called the defective detective Oh, I've heard uh, of this. Yeah. yeah, the idea was it was about a detective who was investigating a missing girl, and she real life was so horrible in this very mm. Gilliam-esque kind of way that she had escaped into a fairy tale land, like mm. an actual world of wonder. But this detective was so jaded mm. uh, that um, he couldn't accept the fairy tale land as real mm. and ended up infecting it with his cynicism. Ah. Uh, but one of the things that I glommed onto while I was reading it was there was a whole sequence that was going to be uh, set to a Tom Waits song hmm. called Temptation. I was yeah. not familiar with Tom Waits. Rusted whiskey and a diamond glass. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
and I immediately became familiar with Tom Waits, mm. who is, of course, one of the greats. <laughs> uh, the Song of Temptation, I believe, was on an album called Frank's Wild Years, which is still my favorite Tom Waits album. Uh, it's Piff, stirf, swordfish trombones. No, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> but uh, regardless, that we, we got a was, long Tom Waits conversation. That was that was a major introduction uh, uh, for me. Uh, that was a good one. Um, dang, yeah. Mm. Ah, <laughs> oh, there's so mm. some some. Th- um, Scream was actually a good example, and that's something we might mm. actually do for episode zero someday. Uh, but uh, Scream is a cacophony of references yeah. to previous horror movies, and yeah, very, and, very orchestratedly so. Yeah, and when I saw that in my teen years, I hadn't seen like any Dario Argento movies, mm-hmm. and I heard that there were a lot of references to Dario yeah. Argento movies in it, and so I watched it, and I'm like, "Well, holy shit! <laughs> oh my God, yes, more well, of this, and, please." And uh, also, that that's something my boss did. That was really big in the nineties. Yeah, was to uh, Tarantino was huge. Quentin Tarantino was yeah. yeah. He uh, not only did he like to name check a lot of his favorite music and and movies from when he was younger, mm-hmm. but. Uh, he would borrow a lot of shots and sound effects and other like yeah. actual elements from those movies. I'm pretty sure I I'm pretty sure I discovered uh, Cheyenne Fat films because mm. uh, Reservoir Dogs was essentially like an unofficial remake of mm. an early Cheyenne Fat film. Was it City on Fire? I think is the I, one. That's, I, yeah, I don't know. It's considered a. It's considered a, at least a huge influence on yeah, Reservoir yeah. Dogs. Uh, but yeah, that's that was my big introduction to Cheyenne Fat. Oh, you know what? This is going to sound so nerdy, but uh, one one great source of uh, recommendations I went to a lot was uh, Jeopardy. Because oh. Jeopardy would ask about... Uh, when, when you see something appear as a yeah. question on Jeopardy, you know it's been burnt into posterity. You know it's relevant it's, in Yeah, it's way. like they're, yeah. sometimes they ask about like modern pop hits, yeah. just to make sure like the nerds on the panel know a little bit about popular music. Right. Uh, it, it always felt like a gotcha. It's like, here's a song from this last summer, and all of the people on the panel are like, oh, no. Can't you ask me about the Crimean Peninsula or something? It's like... <laughs> you can always tell they were a little bit uncomfortable with, like, pop media. Yeah, it's often the case. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, when when something showed up on Jeopardy, it's like, oh, I wonder what that is. And I think I learned about, like, the taking of Pelham 123 from oh, Jeopardy. Cool. Uh, yeah. there, was, there was a lot of, like, trivia questions that sort of... <sighs> pushed me in the direction of a book or a movie or a song or an artist that I'd never heard of before. That's cool. Because I was younger and I didn't know those yeah. trivia questions. But, you know, a long time ago I did learn that one of the best ways to learn mm. about the history of anything, really, mm. is to take a thing you currently like and mm. find out what went into it, what yeah. influenced it. Like, what's your favorite movie right now? Is it, is it recent? It often is if you're early mm. on in your movie-watching journey. Okay, so you like this movie. Cool. What other movies are, does it reference? Look it up on IMDb. Did, did the filmmakers who made it, yeah. like, are they did inspired they, by something in particular? Did they give any interviews and said mm. they were totally inspired by this one film you've never heard of that came out in the 80s? Mm. Watch that. Okay, you like that? Mm. Find out what influenced that movie. Just work your way backwards. Yeah. And you can see how, like, history cascades forward and becomes the things that are currently popular, even if it started from something mm. that wasn't initially popular. Hmm. Which is often the case. Yeah. So it's really interesting. It's a good yeah. question. I wish I was a little bit more prepared for it, but that's a good. Yeah, one. Well, that, that's something I could ruminate over for a while. Yeah, we just got a letter. Damn it! Okay, so the this rule is, is the rule hmm. is if we get a letter while we're doing the show, we have to we read have that to read letter. It, so. We try to read them all anyway, but we have to read yeah. that letter. Uh, here, this is from Lady Knight the Brave. 
Oh, hi, Lady Night oh, the Brave. Lady Long the Brave. time listener. Wonderful. Um, hello, Does amazing is... video essays. Check check out those essays yeah, on... Yeah, for, um, oh, for sure. On, on, your, on, on YouTube. YouTube. Incredible yeah. stuff. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Hope you're both doing well this December. Um... Thank you for writing in right when we're yeah. recording. Uh, so between your long time and well-discussed affection for dance films mm. and your recent conversation about Fiddler on the Roof, I was wondering, do you have any favorite musicals on stage or on film? Also, an aside, since I am quite Jewish, I have a lot of Fiddler on the Roof opinions. I've had multiple discussions <laughs> with other Jewish friends about reading different, perform- reading different performances of Tevya on the basis of The Wiggles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. That's um, great. I don't know how else to describe that very specific dance he does, uh, particularly doing If I Were a Rich Man. So we call it the Tevya Wiggles. Oh, not the Wiggles, but the like Tevya the way, Wiggles. The way Tevya okay. Wiggles. I thought you meant like the children's rock band. The, the sort of yeah, da 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 like that. Yeah. He's yeah. kind of like shaking his fists and stomping his feet. Uh, and uh, any Tevya worth his salt will have a good wiggle and a, a bit of oi in that number. Nice. Uh, my other question is, do you have any favorite soundtracks, like orchestral soundtracks, that is, uh, not licensed music? Ah, oh, that's a good, important distinction. That's a good uh, Thanks for the podcast, as always. Leading Ain't the Brave. Uh, favorite um, musicals. Oh, golly. How long do you want to sit here? Yeah, we both, we both love musicals. I've mm. been in a few. Uh, my favorite musical, well... Probably not anymore, but for a long time, it was the first one I was ever in in hmm. school. I was like ragamuffin number five in Oliver, uh, <laughs> a, a play I'm still very, very fond of. There's some problematic elements in it, but um, it's really good. The movie's really good. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan. Uh, great numbers in it. I know the songs, but you know what? I've never seen the movie. You never Oliver. seen the movie. Yeah. Okay, there's some really good stuff in it. I'm, a, I'm a, I generally think it works. There's actually a lot of musicals where I'm really familiar with the songs, but I've never seen a production just because they would release the soundtracks. Uh-huh. Um, like I knew all of the songs from Les Mis before I ever saw Les Mis. Yeah. Uh, do I have any favorite musicals? Golly, uh, I, I I always go back to a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum. It's a yeah. Stephen Sondheim musical. That's definitely the, a favorite of yours. The uh, the Richard Lester movie is also excellent with Zero Mostel. Um, because I'm also like, I took Latin in high school and I'm a Roman history, not really a nerd, just a a bit of a buff. It's an interest of mine. I don't know a lot about it. Uh, so it was fun to see, uh, a Roman, a Roman comedic musical in high school. Like that was part of our class. So that became a a favorite of mine. Um, I fell in love with Fred Astaire in college. So I love Top Hat. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's a really good musical. That's a really good one. In terms of uh, stuff I've seen on stage, I mean, it's, I it's, cli- it's cliche to go to Rodgers and Hammerstein. Like, that's some good stuff. I, I can I can sing Oklahoma, but do I? I mean, do I really want to say I've, Oklahoma? I've, I've never seen Oklahoma. Mm. I love Chicago. I love Cabaret, the Candor and M stuff. I'm a really huge great. fan. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of Guys and Dolls. And mm. I'm going to say something very sacrilegious. I prefer the movie. How uh, dare you, I sir? How dare I you? I like the ending better. I think yeah. the ending of the play is a bit of a cop out. Yeah. And I like the new songs that they added oh, because yeah. what happened is uh, Nathan <laughs> Detroit, this, this is all based on like Damon Runyon uh, type uh, gangster stories about, you know, uh, they're all career criminals, but they're also charming and cute, and they've mm. never killed anybody. Like it's all they're, just they're kind just of gamblers, perfect. Yeah. yeah, but it's great, and they all got the gangster style from like the '30s. But they, yeah, they've never done anything bad. Uh, and uh, in the play, Nathan Detroit doesn't have a lot of songs. Mm. In the movie, they got Frank Sinatra to play Nathan Detroit, so they added him to songs he wasn't initially part of, and they mm. gave him some new ones, and they're all good. 
Yeah, and then they gave uh, they cast Marlon Brando, Brando as Sky Masterson, and they gave him the biggest number in the, the whole biggest thing, number, and he, and he wouldn't let them dub him with it no. somebody who can sing. Yep. So uh, it's it's just fucking embarrassing. I, I don't think it's embarrassing. It's definitely. Have defi- you ever have you ever wanted to hear I'll know kind of out of key? But okay, they, this I'll, this has got you covered. All right, I'll know is a little embarrassing. I think luck <laughs> be a lady he gets through on sheer force of personality. <laughs> I'll know. I'll grant you kind of sucks. <laughs> I'll give you that. Gene Simmons is doing all the work. Yes. In that song, I grant you, and I think she carries it. But you're right; he's not mm. pulling his weight in that. I, I agree with mm. you there. One of the first uh, first times I hung out with my wife. Uh, we went karaoke and I sang Luck Be a Lady. Nice. The Sinatra version. Nice. Mm. Um, let's see. Uh, other. I'm a big fan of like some of the weirder, like contemporary musicals of the 70s mm. and 80s. Uh-huh. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise is a soundtrack <laughs> I listen to constantly because it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also listen quite frequently to the soundtracks to Streets of Fire. Which is kind, okay. of, kind of a musical, kind of more of a rock opera kind of thing, but the soundtrack is incredible. Call Jim, it a musical. It's Jim fun. Steinman's yeah. the, the best. Uh, Popeye has a great soundtrack, and there's a great addition of this soundtrack. Mm-hmm. First off, Popeye is an underappreciated Robert Altman movie. It's fanciful and weird, and it's wonderful. It also and stinks to high heaven. You can shut your sweet, <laughs> wonderful mouth. It does not. Uh, but um, it's quite bad. Popeye's but, bad. But it's a bad movie. It's bad. You done? I'm done. You can okay. You can you can continue now. Okay, but uh, uh, the soundtrack is uh, done by. Um, it was Harry, Henry Nils or I, was, I couldn't remember. It wasn't Nilsson, was it? It was Nilsson. It was Nilsson. Okay, yeah. Uh, Harry, Harry Nilsson did the, the songs. Yeah, and Popeye. they're wonderful, and they're quirky, and they're weird. And there is a. They did a recent in the last few years re-release of the soundtrack. Uh, where there's a whole second disc that's just the original recordings of him doing demos. Mm. And there's like a nine-minute cut of Harry Nelson teaching uh, Shelley Duvall how to sing He Needs Me. Oof. No, it's wonderful. Right. No, no, no. Don't think of this as something like condescending, like, oh, she was bad at it. Mm. It's just charming. Okay. It's really, I listen to it constantly. It's reassuring <laughs> and sweet. Mm. And she's not bad. She's just learning the song. That's what yeah. you do when you, I don't care how good you are. The first 10 minutes you're learning a song, it's not quite right. So you're just trying it out and you're trying new things and he's guiding you through it. It's delightful. And of course, Rockula. Of course, Rockula. Rockula is one gonna, of the great movies. I was going to mention The Apple. I've never seen The Apple. I need to see The <gasps> Apple. Tis, tis. I, okay, know, um, I know. Everyone yeah, keeps telling in, me. I'm saying, I, was, I was trying to see it on the big screen someday, but who knows if that'll ever happen. Uh, so maybe I should just shut my mouth. Uh, between uh, 1979 and 1980, I think like five or six of like the, the best slash worst musicals came out. Because that was the year, uh, 80 was the year of the Apple. Yep. Uh, uh, Xanadu. Xanadu. Can't also Stop a great the soundtrack, yeah. Xanadu. Xanadu uh, is a b- bad movie, great soundtrack. Okay. Um, can't Stop the Music. Uh, but which uh, is a very entertaining movie. It's it's entertaining. It, it's it's odd. It's and, odd. And and it, it's, I wouldn't call it a good movie. It's but. this fictionalized biopic about the village people. It is wonderfully mm. over the top and outlandish and campy. Mm. And it is a joy to watch, even if it's not <laughs> technically good. I do recommend uh, that was also Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I think that was 79. That came out like a little earlier. Uh, that movie is yeah. almost that, that unwatchable. That movie's the pits. There's like three amazing mm. performances in it because it's a Beatles musical mm. in which the Beatles perform none of the songs. 
and they're all covers, and the vast majority of the covers are bad. But there's like three great ones. Aerosmith <laughs> does come together. Mm. Earth, Wind, and Fire, I think, does. Uh, I forget what they do, but they did. Oh, I forgot one. which one they did. Um, yeah, and, it uh, is Earth, Wind, and Fire. And Steve Martin sings <laughs> does Maxwell Silver Hammer, and, and he plays Maxwell. <laughs> He's actually pretty it's fun. Maxwell Edison. Um, yeah. uh, um, it was also Forbidden Zone that came out in eighty. Okay, I love Forbidden Zone, and the next year, eighty one, was Shock Treatment. So we had a Another lot of great these, soundtrack, bad movie. Yeah, um, yeah. So we had a lot of these really kind of oddball rock musicals all yeah. at the same. Um, when was List- Listomania? Was way earlier. I think that, it was, like that was early seventies. That was earlier. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, a lot of these like really oddball rock musicals were coming out at around the same time, and really I'm cool. fond of most of them. Yeah. I think Sergeant Pepper sucks. Yeah, and uh, I think, I think it's a I'll movie watch, you have to see yeah. once. You really yeah. do. You shouldn't let something this weird mm. with this many giant names attached to it, like this <laughs> ambitious. It, you should you should see it once. I don't mm. think you'll like it, but I do think you'll go, "Wow, that, how did that happen <laughs> on that?" Scale. One of those bigger failures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Xanadu is great. Uh, Olivia Newton John can dance, but then they put her right next to Gene Kelly. So doesn't look. Oh, like yeah. She now, can. now she can't anymore. It looks yeah. like she can't. But Electric Light Orchestra does the uh, soundtrack for that movie. And it's a wonderful soundtrack. It's really catchy. <laughs> There's good stuff in that soundtrack. Just listen to the soundtrack on its own. You'll have a good time. I, I like the. I unironically like the dancing number. Oh, the yeah. song dancing. Yeah. I can't believe we are dancing. No, no, no. The uh, the uh, one where the the forties uh, and the eighties like kind of merge oh, together. Oh, yeah, Forget yeah. about the rules it's tonight. tonight. It's that yeah, one. that's a good one. Yeah, that's yeah. also I, a good one. I, I like legitimately like that number out of Xanadu. Nice. Um, I, I could go on. I could go. No, on. No, they're great. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so those are some examples of that. Uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. Others as well, but uh, and now orchestral soundtracks. What are your favorite orchestral soundtracks? Original music mm-hmm. for the film. Uh, there were only a few that I like bought and listened to while driving, mm-hmm. and I was a big Danny Elfman obsessive. Oh, yeah. I, I've just talked about Forbidden Zone. Songs from the Darkened uh, Theater was a good one because yeah. that was all of his main themes. Yeah, music music for a Darkened music Theater, for and, and he yeah, did uh, he did two volumes. The second volume was two discs, so he yeah. had three discs of. Wonderful Danny Elfman scores. And yeah, the, the first volume I listened to a lot. I was so obsessed with uh, his stuff that I started getting scores that I knew he did, even though they weren't, they didn't sound like Danny Elfman. So I had the cassette of the Mission Impossible score for a little bit. He did Mission Impossible? He did Mission Impossible. The first one? The, the Brian De Palma version. No that was a Danny Elfman score. Don't and uh, no, no, no. Weird. Okay. But uh, I got it mostly because he does this really bombastic orchestration of the Lalo Schifrin theme music, right. which is exciting under any circumstances. I'm going to put that on mixtapes. Nice. And it also has that electronica version that you two remixed at the end. Right. Um, Let's see. That, um, that was the, that one wasn't a, a very wise purchase. I listened to it a few times, and then I'm listening to the score. It's like this is just like a long extended like strings portion. It's emphasizing a scene I'm not watching. Yeah, some, like some the, this not one didn't really yeah, this wasn't like thing works, listenable, yeah. but when I'm listening to something like Mars Attacks, another yeah. Danny Elfman score, there's a lot more interesting stuff going on. There's a lot yeah. more fun being had. Uh, my favorite orchestral score ever for any movie mm-hmm. is The Third Man. It's already come oh, up well, once yeah. on this podcast, but uh, The Third Man uh, is a movie that takes place uh, right after World War II. Um, in I think it's Vienna, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the entire movie is scored on a zither, <laughs> which is a string instrument that has a very particular sound. Yeah, and and um, Anton Karras is the name of the composer. It's inc- but here's the deal: this is a dark film noir mm. about like human misery. 
and it's got the lightest score you've ever heard. It's so incredible. Yum, da, 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 uh, yum. A, a score that I'm really fond of that nobody ever talks about is for Christopher McQuarrie's directorial debut, The Way of the Gun. Uh, well, I, got, I remember nothing about it's that. It's got this score, great right. pounding, like really great, uh, mm. fascinating score. I love that score. Um, trying to think. Oh, anything by Johisa Ishii. Mm. Uh, not a very well-known name in America, but Johisa Ishii is responsible for most, if not all, of uh, Hayao Miyazaki's movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I first fell in love with Hayao Miyazaki when I saw Princess Mononoke. When that came out in the late 90s, I think it came out in 99 in America, and was like the best fantasy movie I thought I'd ever seen, and probably still is up there. Um, But uh, the score is just absolutely stunning, and I loved it, and it turns out everything Joe Hiseishi has ever done is brilliant. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anything by Hiseishi, except maybe for uh, Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> the Roberto Benini movie. <laughs> but even then, honestly, I remember watching that movie and thinking, well, Joe Hisaishi did his job. Mm. It's, not, it's not his fault. If you're going to watch that movie, watch it with the English language dub, because that that's what makes it like so surreal, like crazy weird because you're seeing people whose like face you recognize. Cause you saw like life is beautiful, mm. but they have the voice of like Brecken Meyer. Brecken Meyer plays Pinocchio and like the voice so of Pinocchio. Weird. And he's playing it like a little boy, but he comes across as really whiny. I remember we reviewed it and I, I likened his voice to uh, Morty from Rick and Morty. Ah. <laughs> oh no. Oh, oh shit. Mm. We're in so much trouble. Like that remember, kind of, I just remember probably my, uh, mm. one of my favorite composers who, uh, I, I I feel like everyone knows his big stuff, but his small stuff was what had the bigger impact on me. Was James Horner? Okay, a lot of people know James Horner because he did Titanic mm-hmm. and a lot of the James Cameron movies. And and let let's pause. The Titanic music is still great. It's really the um, the, let, the, let's, the song got a little overplayed on the radio mm-hmm. to the point where it kind of lost its impact. But that score is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will take the Pepsi Challenge, and I think his greatest score ever. And I'm a little—I don't want to say I'm biased because it's my favorite movie, mm. but it's one of the reasons why it's my favorite movie. It's a score for Searching for Bobby Fischer, <laughs> which is incredibly inspiring. Uh-huh. Um, did he do uh, the soundtrack to Sneakers with Wyndon Marsalis, or was it just Wyndon Marsalis? Uh, no, Horner did some of the music for Sneakers. Yeah. At least. Sneakers yeah. is a wonderful soundtrack. Have you ever read it? It's this wonderful um, heist movie uh, in the early '90s. It was one of the greatest casts ever assembled for anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the score is just very bright and jazzy, mm. and it's so good. Mm-hmm. I love it. I could hum it. I could hum this. Yeah. Um, yeah. James James Horner passed away a couple of years ago. I know. Um, such but, yeah, such he, a titan. Really but he, he worked with uh, James Cameron, so of course he's worked on some of the biggest films of all time. You know, he did the a- score for Avatar as well as Titanic. Aliens is one yeah. of the most sampled scores ever. My God, there was mm-hmm. a period where every movie trailer had that damn score. Yeah. Basil Polidorus did a lot of great scores. The Conan soundtracks, mm-hmm. both of them. I know Conan Destroyer isn't very popular, but set that aside. Soundtrack is great. Basketball mm. doors, man. Great. Yeah. Uh, do you remember James Horner's first score? It's really notable. It's, is it really? It, uh, it, it, made, it made the film better, but it was a little B picture. Mm. Uh, a, a, a little film I like called Battle Beyond the Stars. Uh, oh, which, that was his first. That was You're his right. first. And that's a good score. Uh-huh. That's it's a, a legit good, good score. It's a good score. It's a science fiction yeah. version of Seven Samurai, which is a fine idea for a movie. Yeah. They made it on a low budget, but it looks good. Uh, pretty big for, for the amount of money they spent on it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very silly, but it, it works. It's silly, but it's it's way watchable. Like yeah. it's, it's not corny and strange like Star Crash. And I, it, I like Star Crash because it's corny and strange. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it's just like this legit low budget 
uh, science fiction movie, and James Horner's score makes it feel like a real movie. That's a lot of that. I'm telling you, man, like a lot of the way of how seriously we take a movie Mm -hmm. is the little details in the presentation. And they might not seem like the most important thing in the world, but things like your Foley sounds real. Yeah. Things like your score sounds like a quote unquote real movie and not something you threw together on Mm -hmm. a Casio or with some samples. Like these things make a huge difference. Yeah. In the long run, in terms of whether people, when they're watching a movie, goes, this is cute. You you guys really, really try it. Or, oh, wow, it's a real film. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Good for you. Uh, Larry Blamir's The Lost Skeleton of Cadavera yeah. got public domain music from the 50s and used it as the score. Now, that's and a, for, that's so a so unique a example in which that one works, actually. But uh, <laughs> the point is, he got legit music, so it, it feels like a more like a B-movie. If he yeah. tried to compose something, it would have felt like a little bit more amateurish. Yeah, like you were trying to... Yeah. So, ironically, by saving money and not hiring a composer by just using stock music, it mm. worked in the film's favor. That movie is brilliant. I love The Lost God of Cadabra. It's so unbelievably... If you've never seen it, this movie, we had a minor splash and it came out in like 2004 2005 mm-hmm. and uh, then it's barely been discussed since but it is a parody of 1950s B or Z grade sci-fi movies and mm-hmm. horror movies um, and it's about a guy who finds a skeleton in a cave and the skeleton tells him to like resurrect this cat lady and also there are these two aliens who are trying to find the skeleton mm-hmm. the plot makes no sense uh, but it's incredibly funny Yeah, the sequel not so much Lost Skeleton Returns Again. It's not great. I, I never saw that one. Yeah. I, I Dark, saw- Dark and Stormy Night is cute. That's the one he, the, mm. where he did a uh, parody of uh, The Old Dark House. Mm. That's cute. I, I don't mm. love it, but I feel like Lost Skeleton is the best material. I've, I've seen bits and pieces of Trail of the Screaming Forehead, and that one's pretty amazing, too. I don't think I've seen that one. Mm. Blamir. Underappreciated. Yeah, Larry, Larry Blamir is hilarious. Um, all right. I think that's it for We've Got Mail this week. Thank you, everybody who wrote in. Uh, wonderful topics. Uh, wide variety of subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, next week, we'll be back with more We've Got Mail. And uh, we're actually going to have a special guest for We've Got Mail. Uh, next week, uh, my wife and partner Michelle, uh, who writes under M. Lapis da Silva, uh, she has a book. Uh, we've mentioned it a few times mm-hmm. uh, that has just recently been published in about the last month. Uh, it is a feminist, pro queer, pro sex work slasher uh, vigilante hybrid mm-hmm. uh, called Hooker, and it is about a sex worker a bisexual sex worker in the 1980s who fights a misogynistic serial killer using hooks as weapons. Uh, it's a really fun read. I know I'm married to her, I, but like I, I mean, I do think it's a really good book. Uh, it's currently available on like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and uh, we wanted to give uh, her an opportunity to talk about the book and also uh, to maybe answer some of your questions. Uh, so feel free to write in. Uh, if you want to write in with a letter specifically uh, for Michelle, uh, please write in. The email is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, maybe put like an asterisk or something in the title or maybe for Michelle or something if you want your letter to be highlighted uh, in the next week. Uh, and uh, we can do that. I think that'd be fun. Uh, but uh, otherwise, we'll just bring along the conversation. We'll talk about her book and uh, it'll be fun. She's a really wonderful person. She's been on a show shows a couple of times. Um mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, we have all these other things that we do. Uh, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a ton of exclusive shows, including shows about Star Trek, Batman, Disney, the Oscars. We just did a commentary track for Die Another Day. Um, 
We are on uh, Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, thank you, everybody who wrote in. Thank you, especially once again to all of our patrons without home, without whom this show and any of our other shows would not be possible. Uh, terrible grammar there, but I think you know what I meant. <laughs> anyway, sincerely oh, yours. Hey, Yoda. Sincerely yours, Bibs and Whitney. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109.